and welcome to our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. And I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to help you understand better how to navigate the therapeutic space. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, certified in EMDR. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to chapter 11 in the book. So, Dr. Smith, in chapter 11, you begin by describing the therapist's role and how it is best defined by what we are not. We are not parents, friends, or exploiters. Okay. What are we? Well, uh, so, so let's talk about first, let's just name what we're here for. Going back to the affect avoidance model, so sometimes affects are accessible, and in that case, our job is to bring out those dreaded emotions and help people experience them in a, in a safe context so that those emotions can heal and become detoxified, so to speak. And the other thing that happens is maybe emotions are not available, not accessible, and in that case they're probably being protected by some, some mechanism, some avoidance mechanism, and our job is to identify that avoidance mechanism and to invite the client to let it go and and experience the emotion. So that's basically what we're here to do. And in doing that job, uh, that's right, there are three things that we're not. We're not parents. How are we not parents? Well, parents are responsible for their children's uh, activities, for their children's behavior, if, and as therapists, we're not unless there is an exception that if, if there's immediate danger, then, then our licensing and society does give us procedures that we can follow to, uh, to raise the level of, of care and, and, uh, and ensure that uh, people are protected. So that's the exception, but otherwise, we're not there to control what people do. We're there to help them manage their own selves and their own behavior, and so that's a difference between a therapist and a parent. Uh, the second thing we're not is we're not friends. And there's a couple of aspects of that. First of all, the main difference between therapists and friends is that friends have to derive as much satisfaction from the relationship as they might give. Right, it's reciprocal. That's right. And, and as therapists, we're not there to take anything from the patient or take anything from the relationship of course, it is very satisfying to be a therapist, but that, that is secondary. That's not something primary. And if it gets to be primary, then we're in trouble. We'll talk about that in a minute. So that's, that would be exploitation. The other thing that's different is that we as therapists have what I think of as a mandate to uh, go a little bit deeper than friends would. When, when friends are having a conversation, we sense very quickly when something is tricky territory, and we don't go there. We don't, we don't push our friends generally, unless they're really, really good friends. We don't push them to talk about things that are uncomfortable. But as therapists, that's our job. 
And so, so we very often do, and that's different from, uh, from friendship. And generally it's understood by the patient that that is our job, and so there's a greater window of tolerance for that kind of probing. Exactly, yep. And, and so the third thing that we're not is exploitative. And th that's a pretty strong word, but it really covers a fairly wide range of things. Let's say I hear once in a while about therapists who talk to their patients about their own troubles or their own challenges in life or something like that. That's exploitative. That's using a, a therapeutic relationship to take care of some of the therapist business, and it's not appropriate. Um, and there, there are other insidious ways that therapists might take care of their own needs in, instead of the patient. I'll give you an example. And this gets us to a, a key rule that besides not exploiting, uh, another rule that's very helpful in terms of doing the right thing with patients is don't make or imply promises that you won't be able to keep. I'll give you an example. I've seen and heard in my, in my blog about a number of therapists uh, especially people who've been traumatized in early life, and their therapist tells them, I'll always be there for you. Right. Well, then six months later... They move. They move. <laughs> yes. and, and, and the patient is devastated because, because this, this poor client had no idea that such a thing could happen and had become extremely attached to the therapist. And so that's experienced as a huge betrayal. And we can ask... Was that something the therapist did in order to feel good about him or herself? Or was it something really in the client's best interest? And, and so I would say just that the rule is be very, very careful about promises that you make overtly, but also promises that you might imply. A, a good example of that is that sometimes people with addictions will sort of maneuver at the beginning of therapy. Okay, we're going to talk about my anxiety, but we're not going to talk about my, my substance use. And if a therapist goes along with that or, or doesn't object... There's an implied agreement. There's an implied agreement and we're in trouble. Mm -hmm. Because, in, and in general, I've even run into this in terms of information with somebody who's involved in, in work that, let's say for the State Department or something like that, that's confidential, and as soon as you have an area that's walled off and not available to the therapy, somehow it usually turns out that that's where the issue is. And so, so I think we need to be careful that, that, yes, there are times when there might be confidential information that can't come into the therapy, but there are ways to talk about it in general. And so the, the point here is that it's, we should bear in mind that it may compromise the therapy if there's any area that is off limits. So then there's, there's a bit of a fine line with that. If the patient wants to compartmentalize, wall off one part of his or her behavior, such as substance use, for instance, and we have the mandate to meet the patient where the patient is, we can then flag that, say, I understand that you don't really want to talk about that, but at some point we're going to need to. That excellent, good, good point. Yes, um, and we really can't compartmentalize. Human beings don't do that. Um, I, a, a psychiatrist once told me on the phone about a patient that who had come to see me that well, 
I, I, I gave benzodiazepines, I gave sedative medication to an alcoholic because I was just treating the anxiety. I wasn't treating the alcoholism. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's not going to work. No, that's not going to work. Okay. So um, tell us a little bit about boundaries and what your thoughts on boundaries are. Well, when, when, I, when I wrote the chapter in the book, I realized that I was writing the book for people all over the world. Uh, because I think psychotherapy is, is really expanding way beyond uh, Western Europe and, the, and the North America where it originated. And cultures are different, and people expect different things. And, and furthermore, there are different kinds of therapy. There are body workers who touch. And, and then there are us more verbal kinds of therapists where, where that can be quite dangerous. And so my advice to, the, to somebody who's, who's in the early in their career or learning to be a therapist, is this is a place where having supervision and, and having uh, some, some form of formal training is really, really important. Because, because boundaries are, or safe boundaries, are really defined by the culture and by the client's expectations. So you speak of boundary crossings and boundary violations. Yes. So I think that the distinction between boundary crossings and violations comes from Glenn Gabbard, who has written a lot about this, uh, this subject and uh, is, is kind of the, the source. And he points out that, that boundary violations are things that are, uh, that, are, that are destructive, that are hurtful to the client. And, and those would be either exploitative or would, they would be things that imply uh, some promise that the therapist is not going to be able to keep. And there are things like, uh, like touching that's inappropriate. And we'll, we'll talk about some other varieties as we, uh, as we go on. And then boundary crossings are things like, like sharing a bit of information about the therapist's own life which can sometimes be useful. More often, you'll try it out here or there, and you'll find out that most of the time it's boring to your client. They're not interested in you. But once in a while, it can be helpful. But that might be an example of a boundary crossing that actually is not harmful uh, to, the, uh, to the client. And the boundary of keeping the therapist's private values and beliefs out of the therapy you say, protects the patient's freedom to develop a personal style and identity. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit more about that? So, in general, the theme here is to be conservative about boundaries until you're pretty sure of yourself and you have enough experience to know exactly what the, what the pitfalls and problems might be. But a very general principle is that we don't want to impose our values and beliefs on clients. And, and believe me, this has been done. I've, I've heard instances of patients who were recruited as, as uh, disciples of a guru therapist. Uh, I've also heard of therapists who tried to impose their religious beliefs on their, uh, on their clients. And uh, those things are really not appropriate because what we're trying to do here is we're trying to help an individual grow into the person that they want to be and that they were, we could sort of say, meant to be to fulfill their own potential. And there's no way that we as therapists can guess in advance just what that's going to be like. 
It's a difficult distinction sometimes to make, you know, because there are some cultures, for instance, that believe in corporal punishment of children and spanking children, and a therapist might view that as child abuse. Um, there are also families who are very pro-social and, um, you know, just cultures, rather, that are very pro-social and uh, will, in the name of general peace and harmony, kind of sacrifice one individual. For instance, there'll be one individual who's been exploited within the family, but in order to keep the peace in the larger group, no one really intervenes. It's difficult to know when to cross that, that line and when not to. We, we'll talk about that a little bit more when we speak about the, the therapeutic contract uh, shortly, but yes, those are difficult, and I think that the key there is that this is voluntary on both sides. A therapeutic relationship really requires consent for, for both, uh, and, and if there's something that, that the therapist really cannot abide, abide uh, then therapist has a right to say, you know what, this is something that, that is beyond what I can do and, and I I'm, I'm just can't be a participant and we're going to have to find you somebody that would be more, more satisfactory for you. There are other situations, I'll tell you a couple of them that are fairly common. One is when people come with the idea that their religion says that they shouldn't have bad thoughts. And I'm going to tell them that, you know, spontaneous thoughts are not something that you can control. And more important than that, when you try to control your thoughts, then they're going to get stronger. And when you try to control your feelings, they're going to get stronger. So I really can't under, from my point of view, is a mental health issue where reality is something that we, we really can't fight. And sometimes religions seem to have that idea. So that's a place where I'm going to say, look, if, we, if, we, if, if your goal here is to control your thoughts and feelings, I can't be a participant in that. Right. An example of that was, uh, was a man who came to me and, and he wanted to stop stimulating himself sexually. And that was okay, but the problem was that his wife was refusing any kind of sexual intimacy. And... And so I said to him, I think we're going to have to tackle the problem of your marriage first before, before we can really expect you to be successful with, the, with your other goal. So sometimes there, there are situations where, as experts in mental health, I think we have to educate our clients about what's possible and what's not possible. Right. And so then, in that case, that kind of leads us into effective boundary management. Uh, there's a metaphor that I think is extremely useful here, and, and that is that a therapist is in a way like a waiter in a restaurant. Right. And anybody who's been to a restaurant has, or from time to time has probably experienced waiters who are too attentive, waiters who are too personal. Intrusive. And waiters who are not involved enough. Uh, and, and all of those are things that can happen in the therapeutic relationship. Therapists can be overbearing, can be overinvolved, can be intrusive, and they can also be, uh, be too reticent, uh, too quiet, too standoffish. So we need to find just the right balance for the particular client of, of how active we should be uh, in, in, in helping out with this 
this change process that's going to be going on. Another issue about, about that is flexibility. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the old days, I think that uh, when, when I started my training, the question at an initial assessment was, is the patient right for the treatment? And today that's really nonsense. It was nonsense at the time. It, it, we need to be flexible and we need to adjust the treatment to fit the needs of the, of the client. And I think people experience that flexibility as a caring, as a willingness to, uh, to understand their needs and to try to match those. And also perhaps as a form of attunement, right? If the therapist is attuned to the patient, the therapist will know what the patient needs and pretty, be able to provide that. Pretty much, though we'll, we'll talk in a little bit about how we, inevitably there are also places where we miss the boat. On the other hand, flexibility is, that's a balance because if we're too flexible, then we may not provide the, the solid kind of backdrop for the person to, to learn from. And we may just be, be kind of mushy. And so, uh, so a therapist who doesn't react, I think, is, is a therapist who's not providing the, the kind of clear environment and, and helpful framework for a client to kind of figure out where they are and for the client to navigate. So I think consistency is something valuable, but balanced by flexibility. Right. Okay, so we always want to be attuned to the client's needs. And, and we're talking about what we do with that attunement, that sometimes it means being flexible, sometimes it means saying, drawing a line and saying, this is what I really believe, and, and, and being clear with the, with the client. Essential to all of that is empathy. And we've already talked in, the, in earlier podcasts a little bit about empathy. The key to empathy is that it's not about being nice. It's not about being solicitous or, or even warm. The key to empathy is really what you do to help your client let you into their world. Empathy is something that clients make happen. It's not something that therapists make happen. We facilitate the process of a client communicating to us enough about their inner world so that we can feel it in the center of our chest, but it's, it's not something that we can do in a vacuum. No, and so for accurate empathy to occur, it's, it's an act of imagination and of meeting the client in what the client is actually describing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's really important for us to kind of to interview the client and be very aware of the areas that are, that are missing or that are fuzzy or that are presented in an abstract way so that we really uh, get to know. And the way you know that you've done your job as an interviewer, uh, your job of eliciting that kind of clear information is when you feel it. And if you don't feel it, then something is missing. I can remember a very formative experience many years ago. A client started to, to cry, and the tears were coming, and she was, was in, this, in this obvious distress, and I had no idea what was going on, and I couldn't, because, because I had no idea, I couldn't feel it. And, and so I said to her, you know, I'm terribly sorry, but I really don't understand what your, what your tears are about. I need you to let me know about that. Mm -hmm. And eventually she did, and, and then we got reconnected. Uh, so, 
since then I've realized that you know it's not my problem if there's a failure of empathy it's something that I can help with but there's something going wrong and it's not necessarily in me and, and uh, that was an important realization and so therefore ask more questions right right you say that there are two exceptions uh, where empathy is not the perfect medicine. Could you tell us a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, so, so otherwise empathy is the perfect medicine. It's the silver bullet. It's something that you can never have uh, too much of and it has no side effects. It has only benefits, except in these two situations. One is when you're working with a person with a narcissistic personality disorder, they may experience your empathy as humiliating as leading to weakness on their part and that's very very upsetting so we need to be a little bit careful about that and uh, and and maybe take our take our time about it the other one is probably even more important and that is with clients who are schizophrenic that that those people have a very shaky boundary themselves and so they may experience something fairly mild that we might observe about them as penetrating their own their own boundaries and kind of taking over their soul, and, and so we want to be quite careful about the the limits of empathy with with a person who has those kinds of very shaky sense of their own uh, of their own boundaries, where they end and the rest of the world begins. Right, except perhaps. Uh in the element of psychoeducation with a person who has schizophrenia and that you can state empathy for for the fact that they have a severe mental illness and and that this is how to best navigate the world with this illness and show empathy in that manner right but but you can see psychoeducation is a little bit impersonal right yes it's a little bit kind of general principles as opposed to, gee, I understand exactly what you're feeling. Right. Which would be scary for, for a person with uh, whose, whose sense of self is shaky. Absolutely. So then, breaks in empathy. Okay, inevitably, we're going to miss the boat. Inevitably, there are times when we don't understand what's going on, or we, or we think we do and we're wrong. And pretty much every statement that, that I might make as a therapist has a question mark at the end. There's always room to be wrong. And in fact, the times when you don't get it are the most valuable because those are the ones where you're going to learn something. You're both going to learn something. So breaks in attunement, breaks in empathy are inevitable and, uh, and they need to be thought of as, as kind of valuable situations. But there is suddenly you're not on the same wavelength. Suddenly there's a, there's a distance, there's a breach. And so those things need to be dealt with. Uh, I think that beginners often have the instinct to just ignore it and, and keep on going. And that's not gonna work because if, if you're not walking on the same path, then you're going to get further and further apart. Yeah, but beginners have to know that they breached empathy. Right, and so they, how, how do you, I mean, you have to ask the patient, mm -hmm. but is the patient necessarily going to, to cue the therapist that, no, 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 this is all wrong? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. It's so tricky. how do you know? Well, when, I think again, when, when you, if you're 
tuned into your own self to whether you're feeling things and you're following along, you'll find that it doesn't feel quite right that something's going wrong. It, it may be that it comes to you pretty clearly. Um, it happened to me last night. I was talking to somebody in a certain certain way that's, that's worked okay at some times and she suddenly said, no, that doesn't work for me, that's all wrong. So she told me what, what she needed and I said, okay, we'll, we'll change gears there. And we got back together. So detecting that there's a break is, is the first issue. And, and I think as you get used to following the, the flow of information, following the relationship, that generally becomes pretty clear that you're either there and you're with the person or you're not. And you remember that if you run into a snag, that means that the mind's cursor has changed to a different place and we need to then be talking about whatever snag might have, might have happened. So I think it's important to acknowledge when there is a break. So acknowledging a break, you know what, I think we're not on the same wavelength, I think maybe I missed the boat here, is a very soothing thing to say because now we're making a comment that's that's exactly where the cursor is because the client is feeling that even if they're not saying it they're feeling that there's been a break and so our so our bringing it up helps to make that the issue and then we figure out how we missed the boat or what happened and then we're going to be back uh, back on track once in a while it happens that a therapist is aware of having made a mistake or, uh, or said something wrong or something like that and the client doesn't show any indication of it. So what do you do? You have a choice. You either wait and listen to whether there's any indication that, that the client is aware of what happened or you bring it up. And I think the answer is you have to make a guess about whether this is something that, that you should bring up and if it didn't turn out to be an issue for the client, fine, um, or whether you might leave it and, and wait to see if there are any indications that there has been a distancing in this, in this relationship. And if there has been a breach and the client doesn't say anything and there's this distancing, that would be something to address in the therapy. Wouldn't it? That's right, yes. That in itself is a, is a, a new event that would have some, some meaning and need to be uh, looked at. And so then in that case, the therapist would want to elicit feedback from the patient. Right. Uh, there's been a lot of research about that, and, and when therapists give questionnaires at the end of the, of the uh, session, um, the research shows that therapists typically think they're doing better than, <laughs> than what the clients report. <laughs> that we, we think we're just fine and we're doing great and everything's good. And then it turns out that the client really is more skeptical than, than we are. So it's, it's a good idea. So it's a good idea during sessions or, or afterwards and periodically to get feedback from the client about how the therapy is going in their view and how they feel about the relationship and, and what's going on there. Yes, to very, save very us from useful. to save us from being a self-satisfied lot. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Uh, you mentioned a formula for how to balance maximum empathy and optimal expectancy. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, this is really important. I, I for a long time I tried to find some some formula that would always apply. 
And empathy is something that you can never have, except for those, those exceptions, you can never have too much of it. So maximum empathy all the time is something to be seeking as a therapist. But then there's something else that's variable, and that's what I call expectancy. Carl Rogers talked about unconditional positive regard. Well, that sounds great, but there are times, let's say with a person who's, who has a, a, a destructive addiction and they, they keep on with the addiction and can actually use the therapeutic relationship as a source of safety and comfort that allows them to continue the bad behavior. Well, you know, if as therapists we just continue with our unconditional positive regard as if that was just fine, we may be enabling our client. And that's, that's a dangerous thing to do. So there are limits to that. In fact, the therapeutic relationship is not 100% unconditional. Uh, for example, if, if clients start throwing things in the office and breaking furniture, that is not okay. So, so the relationship is conditional on a certain level of appropriate behavior, both inside and, and outside the relationship. So what that leads to is that there is some degree of conditionality, some degree, and I call it expectancy. We have expectations that the client is going to be doing their part in, in the therapy. And if we let go of that completely, we're not doing our client a favor. On the other hand, when we, have, when we make demands, when we have expectancy about the client, that really shifts the relationship. It makes it more of a you know, boss and, and, and employee relationship or something. Or like parent-child. Or parent-child. So, and that's really dangerous. We don't want to get too far into that. So what I would say is that expectancy is very, very powerful. It's very powerful for a therapist to make demands on the client. And so we, we have to, but the demands need to be very, very quiet and subtle. If they're just this tiniest degree that there is a limit to what's okay here. There are some expectations, but we're going to be very, very light about it because those expectations have such power. So in that way, by being very subtle, the level of expectancy is not going to be a problem in the therapy. It's going to actually be an enhancement. So humans being as sensitive to the threat of a break in relationships as they are, I wonder, can you give us an example? Yeah, I think that, for example, if, if a client, it becomes obvious in, in a therapy session that the client really needs to practice some new behavior, and then they don't do it. So we might want to, it might be the therapist's job to bring up gee, that's really interesting. That it seemed clear to both of us that this was a good thing for you to do, and yet you didn't do it. So I think we ought to talk about what happened and, and how, that, how it came out that way. Now, you mm -hmm. know, there's a little teeny bit of expectancy in there. And the point about expectancy, so the formula is maximum empathy and optimal expectancy. Right. Uh, when, when somebody is talking about their, their trauma history, that's a time when we're not going to have any expectancy at all. We're just going to be open to whatever they want to share with us. But there are other times, especially when it involves behavior, that a little teeny bit of expectancy is going to be the optimal amount. And that we can bring up 
that optimal expectancy with maximum empathy, just as exactly. you stated. What, what stopped you from mm -hmm. changing this behavior as we had discussed? What was the resistance? Mm -hmm. So there are different ways to do it, but that formula will, will, will serve a therapist well. So that's it for today. Thank okay. you, everybody. Okay, bye. Bye.